and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and I'm very happy to be with you once again as we travel the road in wrestling with the Tennessee Stud. And without any further ado, here he is, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, where are we this week? Are we picking up the horse and getting back on the path? Yo, darn right. You know, he's already saddled. He's ready to roll. Um, we're going to... We're going to continue on in Florida in 1971. We've got a couple of interesting, very interesting things that we're going to do in this program. And uh, one of them is talk a little bit about Ron Wright, uh, who a lot of people know and a lot of people don't know. And uh, he is a character to uh, as, as few as few few in the business ever could uh, to be as wild and as crazy as Ron Wright was. And uh and we're going to discuss a little bit about my first time to bleed in the ring, and and uh, it's quite a quite a different situation than most guys on their first time. So, uh, and uh, just really looking forward to it. I want to thank everybody first of all. You know, I really want to thank uh, patrons. You know, for their their interest. I mean, uh, we've just released the Bob Armstrong uh, Super Studcast number five. And it's just doing tremendous. Uh, a lot of people are obviously very interested in that. I had a great time doing that with you, Brian. And I thought that was a tremendous program. And uh, I encourage fans to listen to that. They get the chance. And and I guess we're just ready to roll today, man. Just uh, uh, Have you got anything you'd like to add here? I have to say, I guess just a little bit of a preface here uh, going into it. A viewer or listener discretion is advised. This may be the bloodiest episode. Of the stud cast. Certainly the bloodiest to date. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, the, you know, we're going to tell it like it is, Brian. That's what we've been doing since we started this. And, and we're 44 episodes in. And I just, uh, this will be number 44. And this is this is part of part of the way it was. And this is the part of history of the sport. And I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to uh, sidestep this one either. Uh, I got a lot of fans and comments that say, Ron, you, you, you really don't sidestep much and you're really telling it like it is. And, and I'm going to continue with that process. So I think what I'll do here is I'll just start out with Ron Wright. Uh, and this guy, uh, when in 1971, uh, this, we're probably talking about uh, uh, early summer in 1971, Ron Wright, this guy shows up in the dressing room. It's uh, Tampa. The first night I see him in there, uh, there's a lot of wrestlers that came from vacations uh, to Florida because we were in the Sunshine State. A lot of them showed up in the wintertime because obviously that's the best time of the year to be down here and humidity's not so bad and you get that nice sunshine when people at home are getting the snow. And they would come from all over everywhere. And one night I go into Tampa and there's a few young guys in the crew with me. Slater, I think, is there. Maybe Mike Graham is there. And there's a guy that comes in and sits down over on by himself in the kind of the corner of the dressing room, doesn't go by and introduce himself. And that's kind of odd because uh, that's kind of cordiality. It's just part of being a wrestler. When you go in the dressing room and you don't know people, you you go around and uh, you you introduce yourself to them and. They, this guy doesn't do it. He sits over in the corner, 
and he just starts putting on his boots and he starts getting ready for ready for for his match and then he pulls out something and we notice him playing with it over there can't figure out what it is but he has a a it's a little piece of metal that's about the width of your hand when you make a fist it's about wide enough to cover the top of your fist your fingers and your knuckles and it's about uh, two inches wide and about four inches long it's flat it has a piece of tape on a lot of it on most of it but then there's a noticeable piece of metal that's in a triangular shape that's welded it looks like it's got to be welded on the top of this this whatever this is we don't know what it is we're kind of watching this guy, and we see him over there. He takes out an emery board, and he starts filing this this little piece on the top of this of this contraption that he's got. And I watch for a while, and I'm I'm intrigued by this. I got to go meet this guy, and I, I want to ask him what in the heck is that, you know? And so I do. And a couple of other guys kind of straggle over there with me. They they want to they want to see what the heck's going on too. So he introduces himself. I introduce myself, and he introduces himself as Ron Wright. Uh, I've not been to Tennessee at this point in my career. Ron Wright lives on the eastern side of Tennessee. He lives in the Tri-Cities, they're called, in the northeastern corner of the state of Tennessee. There are three cities about 20 miles apart, Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol, Tennessee. It's uh, so close to Virginia that Bristol sits half in Virginia and half in Tennessee in the state of Tennessee. And this guy is from there. Now, I've heard of his name before, but I have never seen him before. And I'm not so concerned about who he is as what he's got on his hand. And I so I say, uh, what is that? You know, I'm looking at this thing. Now I'm up close and I can see that. It, it looks like it's a, a piece of metal that's, like I said, about two inches by four inches. Uh, there's a little hand where you slide it into your, into your, over your knuckle. And it, and then you, once you make a fist, it leaves that flat piece sticking up straight. And in the middle of that flat piece is about another inch and a half piece of metal that's triangular shape, sticks up, I'd say about a half inch high. And it is very sharp. You can tell by looking at it, it's sharp. And he's got an emery board, and he's filing it. And I say, what is that? And uh, now he's an East Tennessee boy. So he says, uh, well, I got the, that's my that's my chisel. You know, and I said, you're what? And he says, my chisel. And I said, a chisel? I mean, why you call it a chisel? And he says, that's how I get juice. He said, I like to puss guys with this chisel, and by golly, they bleed really good. And I was like, whoa, way better. You know, so was Slater, and so is Mike Graham. And, you know, now there's a couple more people that have kind of slid over there, and they want to hear this too, you know, what's this all about? And so I said, well, you know, down here in Florida, we don't do much of that. You know, there, there's not a lot of blood here. There's not a lot of bleeding here. We do a lot of wrestling here. Well, you ain't going to see a lot of wrestling out of me, says I'm going to use my chisel on somebody. I done come all the way from Tennessee, and I plan on hitting somebody with my chisel before I leave here. And so <laughs> I think one of them asked, he says, well, how long are you going to be here? <laughs> Because I guess they're a little afraid about uh, who's going to get hit with this thing. And he says, I'm going to be here for a week. I, I won't be going out of here for a week. And be between now and then, I'm going to sharpen my chisel every night. And sooner or later this week, I'm going to hit me somebody with it. So we're all like, well, this guy's pretty far out there, man. I mean, we go sit back down kind of off to the side, and we're like, What's, who, what the heck is this all about? You know, where did this guy come from? Well, you know, Ron Wright's pretty pretty decent wrestler. He, he's actually a pretty good wrestler, but he is an outlandish character, and as he stays around there for a week, he doesn't travel with any of us. He travels by himself every night. So you just see him in the dressing room. Every night he's in the dressing room, and every night it's the same routine. Puts on his boots, puts on his trunks, takes out his chisel, and he starts a sharpening. 
So we're like, wow, this guy's, he, he's really out there. And I've never seen anything like this. I'd never heard of his chisel. Now down the road, when three years later, I'm going to move right up there and start building my first territory right in his area in the eastern side of Tennessee. I'm going to be in Knoxville. He's going to be a, I'm going to find out that he's a huge star up there in the eastern side of Tennessee. Actually works a lot of places in Tennessee, goes into Carolina. He travels quite a bit. He has a brother that wrestles that's named Don Wright. They are a pretty darn good tag team. Uh, wrestled with him many, many times. Uh, my brother and Roy Lee Welch, my cousin, uh, worked with him many times. Uh, guys like Kevin Sullivan and a lot of young guys have worked with him. They've all encountered this chisel in one way or another. So this tool that Ron Wright's carrying around every day becomes the talk of the territory for a week. Everybody every night watches him do his thing, and he never gets to use his chisel. You know, so we're thinking by the end of the night, by the end of the week, we end up in Lakeland. And they'll run Lakeland very far, very often. It's pretty close to Tampa, but they do run it occasionally. And in this Lakeland match, it's a battle royal. Everybody goes out like normal for battle royals. There are some matches at the beginning of the night. Everybody's involved in a match. And then everybody usually goes back to the ring for their battle royal. And when we go back for this battle royal, there's old Ron Wright in there. He's the first one in the ring. I can't, you know, he, he doesn't show you he's got a chisel, but he's got it down in his tights. He's ready to do his thing. It's is his last opportunity. I guess he spent probably this whole week looking at the young guys there. I don't think he wanted to smack some old timer with it. You know, he's not going to hit Jack Briscoe with it. He's He's <laughs> certainly not. He better not hit Roop with it. He better not. There's certain certain guys here uh, that he better hero. I mean, I could go down a long list there, but he's kind of checking out the new guys, the young guys. He's going to get somebody that's not experienced and somebody that uh, is probably not going to go after him if, when he does it to him. So there's a young guy in the crew named Joe Flaherty. Joe Flaherty is a pretty decent worker. Uh, he's, he's pretty much a job guy. He, he doesn't win a whole lot of matches, but he gets to work a lot of towns. They use him quite a bit. And he's on this, this, uh, battle royal that night. And he is the one that Ron Wright's going to focus on. So during the battle royal, everybody's kind of watching this guy, especially the young guys, because they, you know, I think everybody has the feeling that this guy's out to get one of us. He's going to, he's going to smack somebody with that chisel. And we're, and it's probably looking at that tool there. It, it's going to be, it's going to be a bad deal. Somebody's going to the hospital after they get hit with this thing. And, and it, that happens quite a bit it happened to me three years down the road, a couple of times, every time I ever got encountered with it and had it, had a, uh, a meeting of the chisel in my forehead, it sent me to the hospital. So I was, I was like kind of staying out of his way in the battle royal. And then I noticed about toward the end of it, half the guys have been thrown out and he gets Joe Flaherty in the ropes and he ties him in the ropes. And once he ties him in the ropes, he backs off and he makes a big deal out of it. I mean, and, and he does this. I'm going to find out later on when I start my Southeastern Wrestling Company. He's going to wrestle for me. He's going to be one of the stars for my company for quite a long time. And he's he backs off. He ties him in the ropes. He backs off. And then he reaches slowly down in those tights. And he brings that chisel out. He puts it on his hand real slow. And he raises it up in the air like so everybody can see that he's got some kind of thing on his hand. They don't know what it's all about because people in Florida and the fans in Florida aren't used to this type of thing. So Flaherty sees it. <laughs> Flaherty sees him pull it out and he puts it on his hand and he raises his fist up in the air. Flaherty goes nuts in the ropes. He's trying his best to get out of the ropes, but old Wright's hooked him in there really solidly. And so we're, we're and everybody just kind of backs off. Like we don't continue much, uh, much of the encounter in the battle royal, as a matter of fact, because we want to see what the heck he's going to do. So he slowly starts approaching Flaherty and Flaherty is 
starts kicking with his feet, just flailing with his feet like a maniac, trying to kick him, to keep him from getting close enough to, to get a hold of him. And he, he can't do it. And Ron kind of slides around by his, by, beside his legs and gets up close there and gets his head in, his, in a headlock. And when he does now, he's tied in the ropes. He's totally helpless at this point. He can't kick him. He can't do anything to him. And he rears back with that chisel, and he pops him. And I'll tell you, it was. there's a streak of blood flies across the ring, probably three or four feet. And he just starts. There's big-time blood there. It runs down his He's He's got blood down to his tights within probably 30 seconds. Uh, and he's pretty upset. <laughs> he's he's pretty mad. He's screaming. He's screaming like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And so Ron's, Ron's not afraid. He goes and unties him. He lets him out of the ropes. Now he's, now he's, and he, and he makes a little comeback on Ron. And, uh, and it looked like it was a little stiff to me. I, I can see that, you know, a lot of those blows he'd thrown, aren't the normal type of punches. And uh, I was like, and a couple of others, we were looking at each other like, you know, what the heck, man, over there. He's, he's really trying to do his thing. But Ron just comes right back at him. I mean, gets him down now on the mat, and he's just pulverizing him. I mean, he's just beating the hell out of him. And he's bloody as he can be. It's like the encounter was was, it was almost too much for us as young guys. We were like, gosh, man, I'm glad this guy is not staying here. You know, geez, thank goodness. He's only here for a week. Uh, it was a pretty nasty experience for all of us, but it was pretty, it, it, it was a really hairy little scene actually, because we'd, we'd been, uh, threatened with it for a week. And then we finally felt, I finally felt like this guy's serious. He is definitely going to hit somebody with that thing before he leaves here. And no, Ron made good on his good on his promise. He did bust him, and and there was plenty of blood there. And it was my first shot to see the chisel. Now I'm going to see that chisel so many more times when I get to Tennessee, out of Knoxville, and I get southeastern up and operating. Ron's going to be one of my stars, and he's going to end up being a babyface, something he's never been in his life. And I'm going to be going up there as a heel for the first time in my life. I go in there, look at the talent, and I decide that I'm going to be better off here as a heel because heels are what really drives your territory. And, and when you've got good hot heels and people that can do it, then you're going to do some business and you just run those baby faces through there and the, the heel takes care of them and he just continues to build more heat. And uh, you can keep running on a, on that type of scenario a lot better than you can by putting your best worker in as a baby face. So I have nobody much there when I start in Southeastern uh, that's, that's, pretty, that's any good. And I decide that, you know, I'm going to need to be a heel here and I'm going to need to make Ron Wright one of my best baby faces. And I do that. I, uh, and there's going to be times down the road there in 74 and 75, 76, 77. I mean, for years there, he's going to pull that chisel on me. And 90% of the time I took it away from him and used it on him, which that was fine with me. I didn't have a problem with this chisel. Then. You can bring that chisel, but if you, I see you pull it out and you're not supposed to have it, and he would put in his tights every night. He, he'd have it there every night. There would be no, we're not going to do anything that needs a chisel, but he'd be carrying it just in case. He wanted to get that shot at you, Ron. I'm going to get you my chisel one of these days. And uh, sure enough, I finally let him at some point. He does get that chisel. But I just wanted to start off today's episode. We're going to talk a lot about this guy, Ron Wright. In fact, for fans that have never heard of Super Stud Cast, Super Stud Cast number two was it's all Ron Wright. And and you will hear, if you'd like to go and listen to more Ron Wright stories, there are a tremendous number of Ron Wright stories. This guy is a character, a bona fide character. And if you want to listen to Stud Cast number two, uh, I'd encourage you to listen. If you want to hear more Ron Wright stories, uh, we're going to be 
and uh, because we're in chronological order here on our studcast, we are going to be a little while before we get there because we're in 71. I'm not going to go to Knoxville until 74 in the fall of 74. So we're kind of, we went through this little scenario here. This is going to be our first little introduction to Ron Wright. And there won't be much Ron Wright between now and 1974 when I get to Knoxville. When that happens, we're going to get all kinds of Ron Wright stories. Uh, but just wanted to remind fans, uh, you know, those that may not have heard the Ron Wright Super Stud cast, I think you're going to hear more stories. By the time you listen to that, you're going to, this guy's nuts. He is crazy. And he is pretty much bona fide nuts. Did you ever have to request he not bring the chisel to the ring? I mean, obviously you said you were willing to take it away from him, but I have to imagine you had guys work for you or there were guys who had to get booked against him who did not really feel like having their face busted up by this chisel. Oh, yeah. Heck of a lot of them. And and there are tremendous stories, and we'll get to them down the road. Kevin Sullivan encounters this as a young guy, and he liked these young guys. He liked to get those young guys. And Kevin's got a tremendous story about the chisel. Uh, my brother's got a story about the chisel. Uh, everybody that wrestled Ron Wright eventually has a story about the chisel. And I used to tell him when I was wrestling him, uh, he would say, you know, Ron, I'm going to hit you tonight with my chisel. And I go, no, no, Ron, we're not going to use the chisel tonight. You know, you don't need to take it to the ring. Well, he would take it to the ring anyway. And a lot of times he would pull it out. I think he was expecting he's just going to do it. I'm going to do you, Ron. You know, <laughs> you, have, you have never hit you with it. And I would just, I'd catch him from behind. I'd see him with his back turned and pulling it out. I'd nail him. I would take it off of his hand and I had to hit. Hey, it's here now. Somebody's going to have to get it, Ron. And it was always him for a while. Probably the, probably the first six or eight times that he pulled it on me. I hit him with it every time. And I thought that that would stop him from bringing it to the ring, but it never did. He just kept waiting on that shot. I'm going to get a shot someday. And he did. I finally gave him a shot after six months of us being in a program together. I said, tonight's your night. You know, oh, man, he was this on fire. This is great. I'm on the whole run. You going to the hospital. I said, yeah, I'm really expecting I will. You know, <laughs> I'm go I'll be going to the hospital after you get through with me tonight. And I hope you're going to feel better about it. But guy was a guy was a phenomenal talent uh one of the best interviewers on the planet and had tremendous tremendous heat and when i turned him heel he was over great as a baby face he, he really had the ability he had those people in east tennessee and he had their hearts they they had seen him for so many years they thought he was the best talent in the world. And and in some ways, he was a pretty darn significant talent. Uh, he couldn't be ignored. And he, did, he didn't look great. He didn't have that fabulous body. But he had some charisma about him. And the fact that he was going to be in a lot of bloody matches, that was intriguing. I think fans liked a lot of that, uh, especially in Tennessee. Tennessee was different. Florida during this time frame, early 70s, is a wrestling territory. Uh, you can look at the crew and see that immediately. You got Jack Briscoe on top, who's nobody qualified or nobody, nobody verified uh, to be a trade champion uh, more so than Jack Briscoe. And you've got the Bob Roops that uh, wrestled in, in the Olympics. And you've just got a tremendous number of great wrestlers in there. And when you go to Tennessee back in those days, and my brother's in Tennessee. When I'm here in 71, he's up there in Tennessee. And he's he's, he's bloody every night. It's a, it's a fight for your life up there night after night. Totally different type of mindset as to how to run a business and how to run a company between Eddie's Florida operation and, say, Nick Goulis's Tennessee operation. Uh, John Kazana was in, uh, in Knoxville. That was his area. And uh, he just he really liked Ron Wright. And he, he kind of turned those guys loose and said, do what you want. And uh, there was a lot of bloody matches in the, in the Tennessee at that time. The blood will continue to flow when we return right after this word about Super Studcast 
number five. That a boy. Yeah, that's right. We're going to ride farther and faster than the normal ride. Oh, yeah, boy. You're ready. Saddle is on and cinched up tight. Stick that head over here and let me get that bit in your mouth. Now the bridle's on. We have a special ride today, Lightning. It's a super stud cast day. Time to give our fans the very best. And we're going to climb a couple of wrestling mountains and ride into history. An in-ring wrestling career that spans five decades is unprecedented in modern-day wrestling. The subject of this week's Super Stud Cast has been there and done that. And at almost 80 years of age, still occasionally gets in the ring with the agility of a much younger man. He began as a fireman in his younger years and became one of the most popular athletes in the history of wrestling. A friend of the Tennessee Studs for over 40 years, he's the man that in 1982 started the longest-running family feud in pro wrestling history, stemming from one of the most controversial World Heavyweight Championship matches of all time. He trained each of his four sons to wrestle and even formed tag teams with them in the 80s and 90s. He's one of the most recognized names and faces in wrestling. When his entrance music starts, the crowd hits their feet and the strut down the aisle begins. He's a member of the WWE Hall of Fame. Some still call him the Bullet. Super Studcast number five can only be about the one and only Bob Armstrong. Studcast number five with Bullet Bob Armstrong. Of course, available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. You get access to the Super Studcast as well as the rest of the story. Three brand new hours on top of all the other exclusive content at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. More about that later. But Ron, we've been talking about some bloody experiences in wrestling. Where are we going next? Well, we're going to talk about my first time to be involved in a match in which there's blood. And uh, I'm working in a small town of Fort Myers on Tuesdays. Uh, I'm young, so I don't get to work Tampa very much. Uh, I start out in Tampa about the first three weeks that I'm in the Florida Territory. I'm in Tampa. And then they put me in Fort Myers on Tuesdays. Uh, Luckily, I'm usually in the main event. So it's given me an opportunity to work with a good talent every night when I go to Fort Myers. And one of the guys they hooked me up with first, uh, I actually talked about a, last week, I had a Rene Goulet Southern Heavyweight Championship match in Fort Myers. Uh, but they kind of marry me with Ronnie Garvin. Ronnie Garvin is a young guy. He's been wrestling for a while, though. He's got he's got some experience. I think he's probably been wrestling four or five years, and it's my first year, basically, in the business. And they kind of put me with Ronnie. And Ronnie's a great, gosh, I had fabulous matches with Ronnie Garvin. He's a grinder. He's the type of guy that's up and down and up and down and calls these spots and just – He's really got a feel for the business, and and you hardly ever had a bad match with him. And I managed to have just phenomenal matches with him uh, because I guess he pushed me, and um, and and I wanted to do, I wanted to give everything I had. So I'm really out there every night to just to just try to tear the house down if I can as a young guy. And so I'm in this Fort Myers, and they start doing this angle. It's my first angle in which I start working week after week with the same guy. We do everything in this town. We we have the the Texas death matches. Uh, we have the, the lights-out matches. 
we have the loser leave town in which he loses and and then comes back with a mask on and I end up uh, losing a loser leave against him with a mask on and I come back with a mask on. I mean, this thing goes on a long time. So in his infancy, this angle between he and I, probably the second, third time we wrestle in Fort Myers, it's it's in a National Guard Army. The Army probably made to hold uh, 1,500 people possibly. It's got 2,000 or more in there. It's like crammed to the rafters every week. It's no air conditioning. It's hot, unbelievably hot in that building. And the fans are all fanning, and they're smoking, as time was back in those days. Everybody did. So you go out there. The heat is oppressive. You leave the dressing room and just open the dressing room door and step out into the main part of the arena, and it's got to be 120 degrees in there. It just feels just you can't hardly breathe. It's just oppressively hot. So you just stay in the dressing room until time to go to the ring. And on this particular night, we've done a couple of weeks together, and they they want me to, to get blood. And I, I've never done it before. And and it's a, it's a part of wrestling at that time. Uh, you just you have to get prepared that, that there's going to be times that you're going to do this. And uh, you just – I really don't know how to do much of any of it. I don't know how to put my stuff together. I don't know – I think Garvin spent some time with me and shows me how to make make a blade. He just it's he just he he really t- takes a lot of time with me and he says you know this is what you do and they do like this and like that and you know my dad I'd never had anybody train me on this nobody ever spoke to me about this part of it so but I want to go out there and I want to really do a good job. I basically, if I'm going to bleed, I want to bleed. So I, I cut myself, uh, forehead, uh, left hand side of my forehead, halfway between the hairline and my eyebrow, I guess. And I hit an artery and I, it's, I'd never seen blood. I'd never seen anybody hit an artery, I guess. And and to be it your first time to do this and you hit an artery is pretty, pretty scary because the blood comes out and not just like runs down your face. It actually shoots out of my forehead out into the crowd. Uh, it shoots, I, I would say, six or seven feet out from my head straight out. And when I turn my head, wherever I turn my head, it looks like a big garden hose <laughs> squirting blood, uh, and and it's just it's really it's 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 wow it's too much it's actually too much it's you know and, and but but for me I'm young man I I want to make this match great I want to just just have the fans going, wow, this is something else. Well, they're going, wow, it's something else, but it's for a different reason. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to, and I would do it. And I I was probably in the ring for at least 10 minutes after I cut it. So I'm really losing a lot of blood. I never really thought about how dangerous my situation was because I just was happy that boy, this is really good. (laughs) I thought it was good. And, uh, and not everybody did. Uh, Les Thatcher's back there in the dressing room, and he watches this, and he actually comes to the ring after at a certain point. But, but Ron Garvin is hitting me, and I would turn and fall and over the second rope, and with my ha- my arms over the second rope, and looking out in the crowd, and I was actually shooting blood on people in the first and second rows. I could see it going across people's shirts and <laughs> they were jumping oh, up. Man. They were jumping up and running backwards. And, you know, and after about three or four minutes of this, I noticed that there's nobody in the first three rows except two people. There's a guy and a girl and he, they has a shirt on a white shirt on and she's got on a white dress. And, and I, I specifically remember them because I noticed that, 
everybody's gone. I mean, what happened to the ringsiders? You know, they've all backed off because I'm, I'm, I'm messing up the building, man. I'm, I'm creating a mess everywhere. And I see these last two people. So I think I say to myself, well, you know, I'm not going to let y'all sit there. <laughs> so, so I think uh, Garvin hits me or something and I fall on purpose and I look right at him and I just aim it. I mean, you know, I know where it's going now. Right. So I just aim right across her chest, right across her, her upper body and right on through him. And it's like, <laughs> and boy, they jump up and run screaming backwards. Uh, it's pretty, pretty nasty situation. And, and Thatcher comes to the ring. Now he's not supposed to be there. You know, we've got, we know what we're supposed to do here. And he comes to the ring and he grabs me and shoves me back into the corner and he grabs the rope on both sides of me. And I'm trying to get out. I said, Hey, you're, you're messing up the match, man. Uh, get out of the way. And he goes, you're bleeding to death. You idiot. He goes, you're going to, you're bleeding to death. He goes, you got to get out of here. We got to get you to a hospital. And I said, no, man, it's going great, man. Get out of here. Les. get out of the ring. You know, <laughs> so I was I was probably a bit too gung ho uh, from the very beginning. Obviously, when I cut myself, I was I was definitely doing more than what I should have, and it uh, it was a match that affected me for a long time. It made me it made me respect that getting the blood, and and I never really liked to do it much after that, I guess, because my first experience here was, was so outrageous and uh, so far out that, uh, it just, it was, it was just a bad experience of, of, for the ringsiders more so than it was for me, because I felt like, man, when I got back to the dressing room, wow, that's a great match. We were already selling out. We probably didn't need to do that because there was no seats there every Tuesday night. You couldn't get all the people in there that wanted to get in to see the matches. And after you do something like this, you can expect your crowd's going to take a big jump. Well, there's no way to jump a full house, a sellout. You can't jump a sellout. So you're just going to sell out again. That's basically about what you're going to do. But I was loving it. I was, it was like, I was growing up. I just, it was like a step forward in my career to be asked to do this and to go out there and, and do it in that form or fashion. Uh, that takes it to another level. Your father never talked to you about it. When did you first know about the blade and did you ever, after the fact, talk to your father about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure, we talked about it after a while. You know, my dad was pretty big on hardways. My dad believed in, in not using blade. He had him bust him, bust his eyes and, and, and hit him with those concussion-like blows that's going to mess your mind up later on in life. Uh, and you may may end up with Alzheimer's, and my dad died of Alzheimer's, and I can I, I can I can't help but believe that some of the reason for that was the fact that he was letting these guys just smash his brains out in order to bust his skin open and be able to go to the hospital. He always wanted to be sewn up. He wanted to have those stitches uh, because then people see you and they go, "Wow, that was real." You know, I mean. Otherwise, they, they question it. I don't think anybody questioned it that night in Fort Myers that I was that was real blood because they could obviously see it coming out of my head and going out into the crowd. So that, that pretty well uh, confirmed the fact that, gosh, that's real blood, you know. And, and, you know, as a wrestler, you put up with a lot of that from fans that you wanted to always ask you the question, well, was that real blood? And do you use fake blood? And, you know, I don't know what they do in the movies, but I know that nobody I ever saw in wrestling in the history of the time I was in it, uh, there was no fake blood. You couldn't go get some something and add water to it and it looked like blood. Or I don't even know. I can't even imagine how they do it in the, in the movies. But I know wrestling was not the movies. And uh, when you saw somebody bleeding, it was real blood. Let's stay on the topic of your father here, because we're talking 71, you're in Florida, your father still owns a piece of Georgia, but it seems like this period of time in his life is pretty busy. What else does he have going on? 
he's into everything. He's 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 into real estate in in a in a phase and in a way that that he he's doing things that most people can't even consider doing. He buys properties that are 500 to a thousand acres. Uh, he, he must own eight or 10 of them. I don't even know all the places that he has land and he's got these bulldozers on that property and he buys those properties that are, aren't cleared. Uh, there are usually a lot of trees there. So he goes in, he'll sell the trees uh, he'll let the loggers come in. It's never been in. Sometimes it's virgin timber. It's it's really worth a lot of money. And he'll buy the property and sell the timber off of it, enough to pay for the property. And then he owns the land. Then he brings the dozers in. He clears that land up. And then he starts building fences and, and pastures and starts growing. some. He farms on some of it. And some of it he just puts the grass out there and gets his cows and so he's got that going. He's he's involved in Atlanta. He's looking toward Florida. He's really interested. He's becoming very close friends with Eddie. And he wants to get down there and spend more time with Eddie. He's at the same time becoming very good friends with Jim Barnett, who's in Australia. Uh, Jim comes back to America every once in a while because he's down in Australia. He's living there. He so every once in a while, he'll come back and stay a month in America. And when he does, he likes to come to Atlanta. He, Jim has begun to have a, a, a little, uh, a little, uh, he just focuses on Atlanta. It seems like he, he's looking for at the future here. And I believe even back, this is 1971 that he's got his eyes on Atlanta at this point. Uh, Turner has not developed his product and his satellite station quite to the level that he's going to go for sure. But I think Jim is a pretty smart guy and he realizes what may lie in the future here, especially with a station that's called the super station that has that worldwide signal that goes everywhere. And Jim probably is already looking at that. But he's there in Australia. Uh, Dad's really spending a lot of time with Jim when he comes to Atlanta because we're still, Dad still lives in Atlanta. I'm in Florida. Rob's in Tennessee. Dad's there, and he spends a lot of time with Jim. So Dad's into a lot of stuff. He's, he's got Eddie. And he and Eddie are buying farms and property together all around the state of Florida. Uh, they have these big places that they, they don't keep them for six months and they'll turn them over quick, like, and make a big profit off of them. They're, they're becoming big business guys and they're doing a lot of it in real estate. And then their wrestling businesses are cranked. I mean, they're doing tremendous business. Eddie is just making a man, bucks of bucks in, in Florida. Dad is doing tremendous in Georgia. It's rocking. Uh, Wrestling all over the country is really, really strong in that early 70s period, that early 70s time frame. And a lot of guys um, like Von Erich are setting up their territories that they're going to do very well with for many, many years. Uh, they've gone out there in Dallas and Fritz is, you know, he's beginning to get his stuff together. A lot of things are happening in wrestling across the entire country and around the world. Uh, Jim Barnett's there in Australia, and Australia is kicking. It's really, they've loved the wrestling there in Australia. It's become a big product for them over there. And uh, so Dad's involved with a lot of different things, uh, but his his focus is on Australia, too. He's, he's, he's really, he wants to become worldwide recognizable instead of just uh, recognizable in the South. So what exactly happened with Australia? Because I've always heard different things, and I guess your dad and Eddie went over there together. What exactly did happen? Well, in the early days, back in 71, uh, things are going to change there in Australia uh, significantly as Barnett prepares to leave Australia. But uh, in 71, uh, in fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you, next week, next week in the next program, we're going to... I want you to pack up those saddlebags, everybody, man, just 
cram them full because we're going to go and spend two weeks in Australia. And it's my first time to wrestle outside the country. And my dad has gotten highly involved with Jim Barnett. And Jim wants him to come and see what's going on out in Australia. And dad talks to me about it. And he says, would you like to go? And, and I said, absolutely. He asked Rob, would you like to go? And he said, no way. You know, because Rob's totally different than I am. He don't want to leave the United States. I don't know if he's ever, except for Canada, maybe. They couldn't get him when we was at WWE to to go to Europe. He wouldn't. He refused to get a passport. He said, I don't want to leave the country at all. But I wanted to. I wanted to go see that part of the world. And I wanted to see how they did business down there in Australia. So, Next program, we're gonna we're gonna hit the road. We're gonna we're gonna make that trip to Australia, Dad and I, and I'm going to see talent that's totally different than anything I've ever seen before. Uh, and it all goes back to styles of wrestling again. Uh, in Australia, they're they're pretty much like a Tennessee style of wrestling. Uh, they've got a group of guys there that are very much into blood, and I mean every night there's a lot of it, and it's. That can be good for a business, and it can be bad for a business. It depends on how it's done, how often it's done. Uh, that, to me, is always my perspective on it. Uh, by running my own company, I didn't want to have a whole lot of it. Uh, there were times that you, it, it was necessary and you needed it. But uh, I didn't. I wasn't one that wanted to have it every week on every card. It just, it, to me, it was too much. And so... It's a dad's dad's pretty much into all of it. He's he wants to go to Australia and we're going to make that journey halfway around the world to, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, I loved Australia. It's just beautiful, fabulous place to, to live. If I was going to live anywhere in the world other than America, that'd be my country right there. Let's get a few listener questions before we wrap things up. This first one is from David Reese in Hellendale, California. Do you think the expansion of cable television in the early 1980s played a part in the fall of the territories? Well, that's a pretty appropriate question, actually, isn't it? Because we just spoke about Ted Turner. Uh, we spoke about Barnett's uh, interest in Atlanta. Uh, we talk about Ted Turner, who is, he is cable television, uh, probably one of the first people to ever realize what cable is going to do in the, in the country and for television across America. Uh, and he, he's becomes friends with my dad in the late sixties and, and becomes close enough friends that he actually wants my dad to work with him. He, he tries to talk him into getting involved in the cable industry uh, long before anybody else is into it. I think uh, Atlanta just happens to be, Turner happens to be the first guy that's got that mindset of seeing how big this can all be. And Dad and I talked about it one time when I was in high school, a senior in high school, about the whole thing. And he says, do you know anything about cable TV? No, what is that? You know, back in those days, it was three major channels, maybe a UHF in town. But uh, there was mo at the most four channels in any city. And I didn't really understand the concept. He didn't really understand the concept. He didn't take up his opportunity that was offered to him by, by Ted Turner to get involved. And so, but it's still, cable does, it's odd, you know. Uh, what happens is, and I don't believe, uh, and uh, the answer to the question, I believe, is is no. I don't think cable was was the entity that took wrestling apart and killed the territories. Uh, I, I, I give most of the credit for that uh, to Vince St. Jr. Not senior, but junior. But the cable television part of it is what happens is you had all these territories for years and years, and, and the situation was that you had ABC, NBC, and CBS, three major networks. You got on one of those networks. You're going to have the TVs. Uh, the promoters didn't compete with each other, so they they want to stay outside of your recognized area, 
and they didn't put their TVs into your cities. If they did, there was a fight. There was a problem. And uh, whoever had the strongest commitment to the NWA and the strongest connection to the NWA is probably going to win a war like that. Uh, that was proven in the case of Ann Gunkel and, and, uh, and her, her thing with uh, in Atlanta there. So, you know, you've got these. Once they start, though, Turner's TV goes everywhere. And when Turner's TV goes everywhere, he's not looking to promote. He, he's looking for his television product. He's trying to do something with television that's never been done. And he doesn't care about the wrestling part of it. So it doesn't affect. If he had been like Vince Jr., he would have probably could have been the first person to develop what WWE is going to become. He could, he could have done it with his television station alone. He was in every city in America and it just, uh, he decided he, he just wasn't that type of person. He did not want to do that. He wanted to develop cable television across America and around the con around the continent, but he, his interests weren't in the wrestling side of it. So the cable expansion of cable television, just made everybody be able to see other people's programs, but it didn't change what, what the wrestlers that they were getting. It didn't change the, the overall prospect or the overall situation that the wrestling industry had going. Uh, you had these promoters within the NWA that recognized each other and they didn't want to compete. And that's where it had been for 30, 40 years. And it's, uh, you know, it's a shame when you got the guy that comes in and he's he's so greedy that he he doesn't want to uh, allow anybody else to have any of it, and he wants to have all of it. And that's always been my opinion of what Vince was all about, Junior. He just he just wanted to control it, and and he did it in a really really underhanded way in which he would take guys, he would take talent out of the territories and then come back and use those guys to run against the guys that had built them. Uh, that to me was really, really bad. Uh, it just, that, that, uh, it was a very underhanded way of doing business. And, and, uh, and it's because I never saw Vince Jr. at a national wrestling alliance meeting. His father used to come to every NWA convention. They were in Las Vegas in the summertime. Vince Sr. was at all of them. He had a relationship with all of these NWA promoters. He was not a member of the NWA, but he came there. Vince came. I mean, not Vince, but uh, uh, out of uh, Minnesota, Ganya came. Vern came there. Uh, he's not a member of the NWA, but he was welcome at those NWA meetings. Because he was a great guy, and he was he he was not trying to take anybody's business away from them. He wasn't trying to sneak in anybody's back door, and uh, those two guys were were there every year. Now I never saw Vince Jr., and I think he was probably at the time frame and the age when I was about the same age as he was, and I was there all the time. Obviously, I was an NWA promoter, and that uh, I didn't see Vince Jr. there. So I think it had a lot to do with Vince's feeling that uh, his disrespect for all of these old-time wrestlers that had put together their own territories and that had given their lives and uh, everything they did to wrestling. And he just, he, he had a different perspective. He didn't, and it made it easier, I'm sure, not having been friends with any of these people that he's trying to put out of business. You never had any issues with another television show bleeding into your market where let's say you have a guy who's injured on your show and he's perfectly fine or cutting promos on another show. No, no, luckily not. We were pretty insulated. Uh, in, in Knoxville, there was, there was a UHF channel. There were three three channels. Uh, when I went to Knoxville, I was on the UHF channel. And within the first three months I was there, I was able to move onto a onto a network channel, onto CBS. And that made a significant difference in Knoxville because that UHF channel only got out about 20 miles. And then your big channels, 
you know, they set up television coverages in America so they don't have a huge overlap. Uh, and that's reasonable because you you got to see that people that own television stations, uh, you're on a CBS affiliate, and you've got somebody, you're in Atlanta, and you've got somebody in Birmingham. Well, you don't want to have a true, huge overlap, you know, and and those guys were kind of like NWA promoters in a way. They owned these businesses. They knew each other. They went to meetings together, and they had respect for one another, and they they were happy with that. They they wanted to get those signals not to bursting out there and have these monster stations with these huge signals that are encroaching on everybody. They wanted to keep their, their business their business, and they didn't want to have other television stations. And for 40 years, first 40 years of TV, that was pretty much the way it was. Uh, you know, you didn't have that cable TV. You had those local stations, and they were just that. They were local stations. And it just changed the business. Uh, it wasn't so much the television as 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 Vince Vince's concept of just, uh, I want to put you all out of business. I want to have it all. And that's, that's the part of it that, that really – really was unique to what the way it all went down and what happened to the territories. Uh, I don't believe it had to do with cable television. It had to do with one rogue guy that decided I want it all. And he got that opportunity with a national TV that I might could have gotten myself in 85. I was offered that, that opportunity and I turned it down and I wished I hadn't, I could have, if I hadn't turned it down, and I had have had the opportunity to have the national program, I would have made it an NWA product. I believe I could have worked with promoters across the country and had the absolutely best wrestling program ever done by having those guys just calling them up and uh, just uh, calling uh, uh, Dory uh, out there and, and say, would can you send Terry to this TV and calling Fritz and can you send whoever in here and, just calling around, it would have helped them at home in their own territories. And at the same time, it would have created such a marvelous and fantastic program. If you can imagine the NWA stars, all these wrestling stars, uh, if you had had a person that had control of a national TV and utilized those stars to build the NWA rather than to build himself, uh, what it could have done for wrestling. When was the first time you saw Channel 17 wrestling out of Atlanta when you weren't in Atlanta? Uh, probably, geez, now I'm going to, I don't have an exact time frame. I do know that in 1981, I was, I would run the Cayman Islands and uh, that's south of Cuba uh, in the Caribbean. And I would take my crews down there about three times a year. I knew some guys down there, and, and they were getting Atlanta TV. They didn't know anything about my wrestlers. Uh, they knew about Georgia's wrestlers because they got that satellite. And so they, they were really big on it. They were huge fans down there. So when I would run a show down there, I would always call Ole or somebody in Atlanta and I would say, can I use a couple of guys for a show in the Caymans? And uh, I did tremendous business down there. And it was a great thing for me because I would take my crew down there. It was a big deal for my boys to get to go to the Caymans because we would go down there for two days. We would, I would feed them dinners and buy their food and put them in nice hotels, get them out on fishing trips and take them snorkeling or whatever it was to just see through it, that they had a, it was a big vacation. Guys within my crew would be just begging, man, like, I want to go to the next Cayman show, put me on the next Cayman show. But I utilized that Georgia TV uh, as much as I could to make the Caymans work. That was in 81. I'm pretty sure we probably started getting some of that, some of that bleed over in, in the late seventies. Uh, to where uh, that Channel 17 was starting to come pretty much everywhere. Uh, 
And it, this was, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't detrimental to you because we had good talent. If we had poor talent and our program hadn't been as good as their show, I think it might have affected us a little bit, especially if they wanted to come and run our towns. Now, if they wanted to come and run your city, now that's going to be a big effect on you there. But because they never came to your to your market, it didn't really make any difference that the TV was in the market. If you were a smart guy, you tried to keep a good relationship with the Atlanta people because you could utilize those guys sometimes. And I, I took advantage of that. I like to bring them in there. Besides that, I'm only a three-hour drive from Atlanta, so it's not a bad deal for me because of my location. One more question here this week, Ron, from Scotty Patrick in Enterprise, Alabama. Where did you find Dennis Condry and Randy Rose? What was it like working with them? Oh, good question. Uh, I found Dennis Condry. I didn't find Dennis Condry. Dennis Condry kind of found me. So did Randy Rose in a way. I guess they both kind of found me. Uh, in Tennessee, Dennis Condry kind of got his start in Nashville. He worked a lot in Memphis. Uh, I worked, uh, we were at Southeastern. We were on the opposite side of the state from Memphis. Obviously, there's no overlap of TVs and that type of thing. But I was a pretty big star, so they would call me sometimes and say, can you and Rob work Louisville? I mean, Louisville or Lexington, especially Lexington, because there was a tiny overlap with Lexington. Uh, they got to see our program within 50 miles of Lexington. They were seeing Southeastern wrestling. So they were smart guys. And they said, Hey, can you come? We would go to Lexington and Rupp arena. And actually I have seen 20,000 wrestling fans in Rupp arena, not basketball fans, but wrestling fans in Rupp arena. They were doing big business there. Uh, so, Dennis Condry is one of the guys that's working on those shows. Uh, that's how I met him. I actually went there and worked for him one time, and I worked with Dennis Condry. And I said, man, to myself, I said, this guy's a great worker. He, he, you know, I'd like to get him. He had never worked for me before. Um, when I go to move my company from Knoxville, when we go to Pensacola, uh, Randy Rose kind of just appears. Out of nowhere, I think he comes to a match. He's not even booked, and he, you know, he's a pretty decent talent. I have seen him work a couple of times and never worked with him, but he's just kind of hanging around there. Uh, Dennis Condry is part of my crew, and Dennis, I, I get to looking at those two guys, and there's a similar look. They got the same kind of hair, the longer hair. There's a, they have a little similar look. And they had a little bit of a similar wrestling style. So it just kind of was a natural fit for me. I, I needed a tag team. And I said, I'm going to put you guys together. And they were like, well, hell yeah. You know, if you're going to use this well. I said, yeah, I think I got a good spot for you. And so they started out, Dennis Country and Randy Rose, as a team for me in Southeastern in the Southern Division out of Pensacola. Uh, within a few months, there, you're going to have the introduction and the birth of the Midnight Express. Uh, they're going to take Dennis Condry and Randy Rose are going to come to me and they said, we want to do something that's never been done. We want to add Norvell Austin to our team and we want to have a three-man team. And I, at first I was like, gosh, man, that's pretty off the wall. You know, a three-man team, what are you going to do with the third guy? He's going to always be there as a manager. And I was like, okay, now I can kind of see it. So those guys, they, they, they come up with the idea, let's, let's call this the Midnight Express and, and we'll have a three-man team and you never know which two you're going to have in the ring. And the third guy's always on the outside as a manager. And obviously he can do a lot of things to add to the match and get a lot of heat. It was a great concept. And from the very beginning, I could see that this is going to be something big. This is prior to Freebirds. Now, Freebirds come along uh, just after the Midnight Express gets started. The Freebirds kind of roll into my territory, too. 
Now I got ideal situations. I got the free birds and I got the midnight express. I've got two of these three man team combinations, uh, and I can do business with them. There's a lot of things I did with those guys, but that's, uh, that's kind of how I found Dennis Condry and Randy Rose and, uh, and they become one of the greatest tag teams of all time. Now, that Midnight Express is going to change. There's going to be a lot of changes. Bobby Eaton's going to go there. You, uh, Jim, Jim Cornette's going to step in as the manager of that team. Uh, they have a phenomenal run in wrestling history, the Midnight Express. And I'm pretty proud that they got their original threesome was right there, Dennis Condry, Randy Rose, and Norvell Austin, and right there in Southeastern Wrestling. As we wrap things up, we want to remind you that you can like Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud, on Facebook. That is the official page on Facebook, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't forget and don't miss the fantastic Super Studcast number five with WWE Hall of Famer Bob Armstrong, available right now at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Only $2.99 for a total of three hours of fascinating wrestling history. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, Ron. Where are we going next week? Well, I think we're going to go to Australia. And uh, and I encourage fans to give this a listen because it is an experience for me as a young guy to, to go halfway around the world uh, to see a whole different culture and to see a different wrestling culture. I mean, what's going on in Australia is so different and so far away from what's happening in Florida that it's a real eye-opener for me, almost a shock to see that business can be run like this in other places in the world. And I can't hardly wait to to saddle a horse next week because uh, he's going for a long swim. It's a pretty good ways out there in Australia. And uh, it's a beautiful country and a fabulous experience for me as a young man, about 22 years old, to get this opportunity. If that seemed like a shock to you, imagine how shocking this will be. Ron, I want to remind you, we need to pick a winner for the two questions that were sent in. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, hey, very good. You picked up on that, man. <laughs> I, would have, I would have probably missed it again, Brian. Uh, I like the first one. I like the question about the cable television and and the fall of the territories. And that's a, that's a great question. They're both good questions. The Dennis Condry question is a great question too, but I believe I'm going to take the, the man from California and then his, his, his question today. David Reese from Hellendale, California. Someone from the show will be in touch with you. Congratulations. You are the winner, but until next time, Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network for the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, I am the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>